Welcome to Parenting Unpacked, a place for parents to seek refuge with evidence, empathy, and common sense. Hosted by Dr. Siobhan Kennedy-Costantini and Dr. Kristen Summer. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome to Parenting Unpacked. You're here for the very first time with your hosts, Dr. Siobhan Kennedy-Costantini and... Dr. Kristen Summer. So we are, I'm going to use the word doctor. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, we don't have to. I mean, we're parents first and foremost. Doctor is just our little reward for doing so many years of study. That's pretty much how I see it. That's okay. what I got out of it. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. um, we're two friends who did our PhDs together um, in developmental mm-hmm. psychology. Uh, so focusing on children's social, emotional and cognitive uh, development. And we're going to talk a bit about what drew us to child development as a uh, topic of study, um, why we decided to study it at university, what we did our PhDs on, and um, how it impacts and influences our parenting. So we're going to start with Mm. Kristen. Why child dev? Mm. What drew you to child development? Uh, Good question. Don't have an answer for you. I have loved babies for my entire life like mm-hmm. you know like those dolls like the baby born doll that was my thing and it's still around now my daughter plays with it now at my parents place so you know I was obsessed with babies and so I've always wanted to work with kids um I didn't know in what capacity um so as I got older and just kind of figured out what I was doing with my life I ended up in psych thinking that maybe I'd be in um a like clinical child psychologist um and then got to the end of my psych degree so a normal psych degree yeah I guess in Australia is that there's an inbuilt honors year which is a fourth year so I did my undergraduate in psychological science um and the institution we did it at was a very research focused institution not um, a clinical focused institution and then for my honors um all I knew is that I wanted to work with kids so I selected a kid supervisor who happened to be an amazing dev psych um, and Siobhan and I both share her as a supervisor um, in our history um, as researchers. Um, And, yeah, I ended up working with babies because her main age of interest is that really young age group from about newborn to, I want to say, where does she stop? Kind of like three, hey? So her earlier work, so this is Dr. Virginia Slaughter that we're talking about, um, mm-hmm. professor. She's she's a fancy professor, has been for a long time. <laughs> she is. Um, her mm-hmm. main thing. Her earlier work was kind of zero to three. In later, yeah. uh, more recent years, she's been doing kind of seven and eight. She's been doing some really interesting yeah. stuff. And cool. Children understand death and grieve, which is fascinating. Mm. Um, yeah. But she runs the gamut on all things like child cognitive and social and this kind of thing but yeah there was a period there for a long time particularly when you and I were studying underneath her that she was very focused on newborns and kind of yeah early absolutely toilet. yeah so um when I did it with her I did my honours year in 2014 um I was um what am I trying to say I just got completely lost um, so, yeah, I did my honours year in 2014 and we researched counting and how children understand the implicit rules of counting before they can actually use any of the words to count. Um, and I had a video go viral on this recently, which is ironic. But basically, I started the honours year being like, I'm going to be a child psychologist. That is what I'm going to do. 
um, getting through the fourth year because that's what you need. Yeah, you need that fourth year. You need to do the research. Back then you had to do an individual honours year in order to get that clinical qualification in the future. You had to be able to get into the master's by doing the honours year. It's changed a little bit now. Um, Yeah. At, at, our, at the university we studied at. So basically you viewed yes. the research as a stepping stone to clinical practice. Yeah. And then I ended up being really good at it and really enjoying it and had a bit of like a, I don't know, light bulb moment where I was like, I feel too much of everything that if I was working with non-typically developing children, which is what you see in a clinical setting, I would take too much of that on board and I don't think I'd survive. So I had to be really honest with myself um, and acknowledging that maybe being a child psychologist wasn't for me because I also found this other thing that I fell in love with as a 20-year-old um, doing research in this kid lab um, in these tiny little stuffy windowless rooms <laughs> with babies where all I heard all day was, look at the fish, <laughs> look at the fish. And that was it. Um because they were counting little dreams now. Yeah. So, yeah, that was that was it for me. And then I finished my honours year. I got a second class honours. I didn't get a first class, which is kind of a carnal sin if you want to go and do a PhD. Um, and kind of goes to show that even if you are in love with research, sometimes you don't get the grades. But it doesn't matter because I went on to do a PhD anyways. And Virginia um, had someone approach her. Uh, from this school of engineering in the US about a robot. So I told Virginia I wanted to do research into technology because at the point at that point I was working at Apple. Um, I wanted to see how kids learn from tech. And then yes, someone with a robot was like, I want to bring this research to the school of psych down here in Australia. Um, is there anyone that can do this? And she's like, you've got to come to this meeting. So 21-year-old me sat in this meeting room (laughs) with Virginia and the head of the Early Childhood Education Centre in San Diego, um, who uh, presented to me a a robot that was amazing. And that was was it. It was the start of everything. I ended up doing research on how children learn from robots, how they use social learning, emotional learning, morality. My robot research is huge um, and expansive. I just keep adding different topics to it. I'm the expert in social robots for children now. And um, I go and grab experts who are experts in any topic, really. Um, and, yeah, we go from there. I mean, Siobhan and I have done one, which we haven't finished writing up yet, naughty scientists. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. So, A bit on. But yeah, we'll do it one day, maybe. I don't know. Um, and that's how we got here. So I finished my PhD, had my daughter, um, which is a terrible time to have a child um, if you are planning an academic career. You do not have a baby at the end of your PhD. I was like six months pregnant when I submitted my thesis. Um, so I had a baby, blew up my career for a little bit, went straight into being a research officer when my baby was four months old in the middle of COVID, which was all a very terrible idea. Um, somehow got very lucky and got a lectureship um, just for the year um, at a uh, the same university I did my PhD in teaching developmental psychology. So that's what I've been doing all year. And that has been amazing. And it's kind of just illustrated to me that this is the right place for me. This is what I love doing, but I also love science communication. So somehow I went viral on TikTok. 
um, just talking about child development. And now that's also what I do. And now we're here. Ta-da. We are. I think that's it, isn't it? Pretty much. So that's a um, brilliant summary of many years of study and research and <laughs> sweat and tears. Um, I guess the, the natural question that follows on from that is, let's start at the beginning in terms of did you feel, obviously you always wanted, um, from what you've said, you've always been interested in babies and kids and you always wanted to be a mother. Um, I know that you've shared that with me before. Mm-hmm. Did you mm-hmm. have, and like complete honesty, all answers are right here, but did you kind of have a, a sense of confidence that you were going to nail this because you had all of this background and understanding? Um, yes. I really did think that I was just going to take to it like a duck to water um, because I knew so much. And it turns out that as you become more of an expert in things, you start to learn how much you don't know. So when it came to things like social learning and imitation of robotics, I knew that I knew a lot. And the more I learned, the the more I knew I didn't know. Um, Mm. But when it came to parenting, I'd never been a parent before. And I was just following generic societal norms and conventional knowledge. Um, And, you know, I knew about temperaments and I knew about certain things, but I I didn't know about a lot of other stuff like biologically normal infant sleep because I just, I didn't feel like I needed to go and research that because it was just, it was portrayed as this is what a baby does. Babies sleep. Um, Yeah. And it turns out babies don't sleep. Um, no, not so well. And I think I mean some do, but <laughs> but, I, but my that's probably the main thing is that the the real mm. the true variant of infant sleep is not very well portrayed. Either you get the yes. two stories you get sold, and you either get yep. sold this perfect baby sleeping in a crib and the parents cooing over it in the movies, mm-hmm. or the mother who's mm. losing her mind and shaking the baby. And then the yes. way that those two stories are told is that. The parents with the sleeping baby, they've done everything right. They they know what they're doing. They're in control. And then the mum who's losing it, mm-hmm. she fucked up. So that's that's basically yes. what you get told. And so you buy into the lie because you don't have mm-hmm. any other information. And I think you're so right that yeah. a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. When you yeah. know a bit about something and particularly when you're so well versed in a very adjacent field, which is child development, mm-hmm. it can give you this false sense of security. Yeah. Um, and I, I was really similar. I um I think the real thing that is forgotten by lots of parents and definitely by me is that the day-to-day is the hard work, the functioning oh. on no sleep. The and like I was like, oh, I've done a PhD. I I had weird hours. It's like pfft, it's not at all the same. Mm. There's right. like and I think the key difference that I've explained to a lot of people is that when you're when you're doing an all-nighter or if you're partying out till all hours or if you're a shift worker there's an end point. You know that you have three or four days mm-hmm. of um, intense and then you know that you're going to get sleep. But when you've got a baby who doesn't sleep very well, there's no hope that it's going mm. to end and you just need you need um, rest, you need relief, yeah. and you don't know that it's yeah. coming. So it's self-destroying. Yeah, it's. I think the word that characterises it best for me is that it's relentless. Mm-hmm. and. In my early motherhood experiences, it was like, I just don't see an end. And I think now that I've experienced a whole, like that experience, I've experienced the really bad part and then coming to a better part. 
as if I had another child, my mental state would be a lot different and a lot better because I would know that it does end. Yeah. But like before that, you just don't feel like it's going to end unless you do things like cry it out. And those things are just so, um, they're so complicated in terms of society. There's so many conflicting messages and my own internal um, attitudes towards those things, the way that I feel as a mother, those innate feelings, they just didn't, weren't compatible with it, which just added to that mental yeah. anguish. And you're only told that a lot of like the conventional information that you see on social media is it's never going to end unless you leave your baby to cry themselves. Unless you intervene, sick. nothing will change. Yeah. And that's, and that's, I mean, that's what perhaps we should have relied on more our own um, training in that mm-hmm. the, the most consistent, yeah. like, yeah, the only constant is change particularly when it mm-hmm. comes to development, like children constantly change and they don't stay in yeah. single state. But as you say, when you're in yeah. the trenches, they, there's no yeah. there's no brain space or like capacity mm-hmm. to think about what's next. Um, yeah, and it really, it took, me a, it took me a long time to claw myself out and remind myself everything that I knew, which was that just because you have an average and that's what all the like conventional yeah. knowledge is based on, doesn't mean that babies all sit on that average line. I know this. I'm very good at statistics. I create those averages. And I also see all the variability and how all the children behave differently. Yet in my own brain, when I'm in it with my child, I still was victim to it. And it's wild, right? Insane. (sighs) And I think that's so important is that like anytime I um, have an interview with um, someone asking me about child development or I run classes, people are like, oh, you must have it down. I'm like, hell no. no. I'm I'm <laughs> in it with you. I am figuring it out because mm. I know, and to your point, I know a lot about children, like the global mm. category of children, but I don't know mm. your child and I'm still learning about my mm. child. Like everyone mm-hmm. is individual, everyone is unique. Just because I know what most, like if 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 you give me like a group of 2000 children and say, what do you think the majority of them, what age do you think the majority of them start walking at? I can give you a number, but there's going to be exactly like you say, 300 children who do it four months earlier. It's going to be another 400 children who do it three months later. Like mm-hmm. everyone is unique and just really learning to want, like ride the wave of meeting your child where they're at mm. is such a huge part of it all. Totally. And I think when you're an expert on children, as a mother, that can actually be um, a downfall rather than a positive. Because when you've got a little bit of knowledge, you're like, I know a lot. I don't need to figure it out because I can just, I know. Whereas when you have a lot of knowledge, you're like, oh, I'm not an expert in this. I need to go and research it. So I was also like on Google all the time trying to get PhD level expertise on all of these things and that's exhausting like and impossible like people yeah you, yeah I I did the same look this, this is zero judgment here <laughs> I completely did the same I spent I still do the same what do you think I've been researching this weekend toilet training so Me um too. <laughs> yeah so like that's partly that's how we cope we just like absorb information and then figure it out I think are. the thing that I'm constantly reminding myself to do and I think is useful for all parents is that we're doing the best we can. You can't be an expert in everything. 
Like literally mm-hmm. you'd have to be a vampire and be immortal. Um, and that's not great for and stop time. <laughs> yeah. Look, not <laughs> not possible, so not ideal. <laughs> there's there's problems associated with that. But yeah, that you just <laughs> have to like I think the the real challenge with so many things in life and in parenting is learning to be comfortable with discomfort and be comfortable with the uncertainty and meeting your child where you're at and meeting you where you're at because mm-hmm. we don't have it together. No one has it together. Anyone who says they do is lying or they're misinformed or they're deluding themselves. So mm-hmm. that's not fun. Let's just be honest. And Absolutely. What's going on? And like the, what you said earlier about the more you know, the more you realise you don't know. There's a, an amazing Socrates quote that I love that is um, true knowledge exists in knowing that you know nothing. which I think is so powerful because like and we we know a lot about a very particular thing and like that's helpful it can be really useful um it can be really useful to remember that kids do all kinds of different things and and I think as well like just because they do something on one day doesn't mean they do it again the next day and just because they're capable of something doesn't mean they're demonstrating it um and also what they're showing us doesn't necessarily dictate what's going on inside their mind so we don't really know what's going on and neither do you and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And I think the only thing that might give us a slight edge over other parents is that we have this um, hard-fought ability to critically analyse conventional societal knowledge and science as it emerges. So whereas the majority of research takes 17 years to filter down to policy and into the hands of parents um we can grab it from its source um and we can also look at any kind of behavior and be like okay is this a societal norm is it being pushed by culture um how in line with it is it actually with the current way of thinking about children um and we can really question those things so it's a blessing and a curse again because we think more critically and can be like, no, this is wrong. Whereas like a typical parent might be like, oh yeah, let's just do this. Like there's no other choice. And we end up with decision fatigue. because we're like, oh my God, if it's not this, what do we do? Whereas other people can just be like, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so, I mean, mm. like it, it didn't, I don't know if it, an edge is the right way to describe it, but, but what our training gives us is, no, that's all right. What our training gives us, we don't, we're not experts or, knowledge we it's not like we have a a suitcase of facts that we can rely on instead our training has taught us how to learn how to access information how to interpret information and how to make conclusions from that information but which is so useful because what what else do you do in parenthood except constantly learn and constantly Mm. try to figure things out um a real battle for me in my own parenting has been trying not to focus too much on the why and like trying mm-hmm. to step back of I don't need to understand why my child's behaving this way all I need to do for him is be there emotionally um which is really hard because that's the last like 15 years of my life has been trying to get at the reason behind things but mm-hmm. on a day basis that doesn't do my child any favors so mm-hmm. as exactly as you say it's a blessing and a curse um but yeah, like our, our real skill set is disseminate, so um, accessing, understanding, and disseminating information, which is obviously why we're both in the areas that we're in. 
um, where mm. in our next episode we're going to talk a bit about my background. But um, that's why we were both drawn mm-hmm. to communi- science communication because we're really yeah. motivated to share what we know. Like we don't want to keep it to ourselves. We want people to benefit from it and take from it what they will. Absolutely. Okay, so with that, we're probably going to close up on the interview portion of this episode. Um, so what we're going to do now is chat all about magic moments and melt magic moments and meltdown moments. Is that what we're doing? Okay, so <laughs> Siobhan, do yes. you have a meltdown moment for me? Yes, I I don't have a, a big big one. I've got lots of little ones. So. Um, my child is learning his colours very ineffectively. Um, he has his, it seems like he's got his favourite colours, but it seems he just likes the colour words. So his favourites are blue, yellow and purple. He seems to have no concept of what purple is, but that's okay. It's a fun word to say. Um, used to say everything was blue. Now everything is yellow, except when he says yellow, he means blue, which makes it challenging because we have blue and yellow cups um so when he insists on a yellow cup I don't know whether he means a blue cup or a yellow cup (laughs) changes on the day and I usually get it wrong and then he gets very upset so we've been having lots of meltdowns about colors and the fact that he's getting the wrong cup and I wish I had followed my friend's advice to only have the same color single color cups (laughs) single color crockery Mm. no options (laughs) um but yeah that's our meltdown that we've that we've been having every morning Mm-hmm. That's fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I guess my meltdown moment is more me um, than my daughter. Um, I mean, we can do both. Adults have meltdowns too. And as someone like me, I have meltdowns all the time. Um, I tend to keep a lid on them and I tend to be able to control them better because I've spent a lot of time in therapy. But my meltdown was this weekend. So we're looking at houses at the moment. Um, and it's awful. The housing yep. market is insane. And um, for those of you that don't know, I have a lot of trouble with social interaction. My social skills are um, not natural to me. I tend to mirror people. I find social enge- engagement and interaction really exhausting. Um, and my social anxiety is actually triggered more by unstructured uh, environments with high risk. And what's more unstructured and high risk than the housing market right now? Um, so I have just reached the end of my tether. I got to the end of a Saturday going to a million open homes and we didn't even have my kid. And I just fell apart to my husband and I was like, I can't, I'm not doing this anymore. You have to go to these open homes. I cannot do it. Um, and I just had myself a little meltdown. Um, Mm -hmm. and now my husband does open homes without me, um, which is good because we know what we like and we like the same thing, but, um, I will not be a good mother if I continually put myself under this level of stress because it's just adding to my um, plate and it's giving me a heightened level of anxiety. And if I'm at a high level of anxiety, my likelihood that I will melt down and not be able to handle my child's big feelings um, is way higher. So, yeah, I made the decision to remove that anxiety from my life and I feel a lot better for it. Um, But, yeah, that was my meltdown. (laughs) Well, I mean, that was a meltdown that turned into a magic moment. There you go. I don't even need to give you a magic moment. But Beautifully on, done. That you, moment? My magic moment. Um, <laughs> it sounds bad, but my child's favourite words, so this mine's very child-focused at the moment, so we did 
you and then this one's child maybe we'll mix it up next time but um he is really obsessed with the phrase go away um so he's been saying go away bush turkey go away um ibis or um, bin chicken in australia and bins of bluey um but he's been also (laughs) saying go away mummy a lot which is a magic moment ironically because it's kind of I actually find it really lovely because he's asserting his independence and that makes me so happy he's identifying himself as separate to me. Um, Yeah, that's amazing. Really sweet. And, I mean, thankfully he doesn't say aggressively or meanly. It's always said with a cheeky smile and it's very sweet, like, go away, mummy. And I go, okay, bye, have fun. Um, Mm. so yeah, it's really lovely to really think, to kind of focus on and think about him as his own person, developing his own life and world. Wow. That's, well, that is amazing. I like as a mother with a very clingy child, I find that that would be a huge milestone where they start to feel like this comfort of like being by themselves. That is such a huge milestone. Yeah. So amazing. Yeah. All right. Well. We're going to say goodbye for this episode and we'll see you next week when we talk all about Siobhan's uh, trial by fire into motherhood (laughs) and what brought her into the early childhood development sphere and brought her to her amazing parent education page, which is science-minded. So we'll catch you then. Bye. Bye.